Greetings and welcome to another episode of NC Raw. I want to take a moment to thank those of you who have jumped aboard our Patreon page that we launched last month. Um, our Patreon page is available at www.patreon.com slash ncraw. What it is, it's a way that you guys can kind of financially support our work if you find value in these weekly podcasts that we continue to, to do in hopes of growing um, to the point where we can build our own recording studio. That's our goal. We are currently recording in a conference room of a hotel locally here in Western North Carolina, and we are very grateful for that opportunity. However, there are some limitations, specifically the Wi-Fi and broadband access doesn't give us the capability to really live stream and produce quality videos on a regular basis. Um, so if you are interested in hopping on board um, as a patron, you get exclusive content. We drop, we post everything on Patreon first for 24 to 48 hours. We also give you some behind the scenes videos of every podcast. We do a little live stream behind the scenes and kind of try to engage with you guys. Um, all patrons will be involved in the in the developmental process of this recording studio because we're gonna kind of it's gonna kind of double as a recovery community center, a place where members of our community can gather and do things like a barbecue on the weekend or watch the ball game and kind of hang out, socialize, and, and cultivate some some long long lasting recovery friendly relationships. Today's guest is somebody that I really look up to in the recovery community. Chris Campo is the director of Scholastic Recovery for Addiction Professionals in North Carolina. He's somebody that I met um, er, in early recovery, my first semester here at SCC, um, and somebody that I really admire. He, he's a he's a wealth of knowledge. Um, we talked a lot about collegiate recovery as a whole and what's happening kind of uh, around the state and kind of some of the operating procedures and things that, that take place in a collegiate recovery program. We also got into a little bit of his story. He has a, he has a past here in the Western North Carolina area, and we talked a little bit about that. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually look forward to talking with him again and working with him in the future. He's an awesome guy, so... Give it up for my man, Mr. Chris Campo. Me 
The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, ready, set, go. What is up, Chris? How you doing, man? Dude, I gotta say, man, I'm grateful that you're here today. Uh, you take some time out of your afternoon. You're over here at AB Tech teaching a little course, and you decided to pop in and uh, have a conversation with me. I wanted to start off and let you know, I guess, whether you know it or not, I wanted to thank you for the role that you have played in my collegiate recovery experience. Hmm. Um, the influence that you had, the unknown influence that you had and motivation that you gave me. Um, I met you, I want to say sometime in 2015. It was like my first semester at SEC and you were doing something with Western and you popped into one of Lori's classes. Mm -hmm. And at that time I was new to recovery. I had six, eight months maybe kind of like going through the motions, but didn't really have a grasp on like where I was going with things. And you came in, you did like a recovery messaging with a little bit of your story and mm -hmm. kind of like talked a little bit about who you were, but most importantly, recovery messaging. And at that time, like, you know, I think people in early recovery have this like, can get this perception that like we have to like change who we are who we are, like our identity has to change. Mm -hmm. And for me, like I'm always been, been one to like kind of resist that type of, like, I want to be true to myself. Right. right. That's why I've, I fall in line with refuge recovery and found refuge recovery to be so um, important because it was kind of like the rebellious way to go. And um, <laughs> yeah. And so like, here you are, you get up in front of the class and you're just like, so genuine and so authentic and you're just like presenting on a said topic but you're, you're you're being your true self and like I could see that in you and it was like inspiring to like hear where you came from and um, what you were doing you know currently and that sort of thing that really just like allowed me to kind of gain some momentum in the right direction nice and then we had a couple other you know interactions over the years as you've popped in and visited visited with Western, um, and I wanted to start off by asking you, as you're driving in from Asheville tonight, and you're coming along the highway, and you get off on the exit, what's going through your mind? Like, is there some some reflection on, like, where you've come from and kind of, like, I'm back in Cullowy <laughs> doing this again, like, the path to redemption kind of? Oh, man. Um, Cause it has to be just, it's, it, it's always really interesting coming back to this area. Um, for those who don't know, I, I had attended Western Carolina, um, in very active addiction, um, and, and had to leave, um, that institution. Um, I also was at Southwestern community college before I found recovery. Um, and, um, there, there are just memories here that, are so ingrained from active use. Um, and actually, and you mentioned this as I was getting right off exit 85. Um, the first thing that I thought of was my friend would love to see a picture of O'Malley's. 
And then, cause she's always talking about their mm -hmm. wings. I don't remember them having great, I don't, you know, um, so I took a picture of O'Malley's for her and that was sort of like, and it's just a weird thing for me, um, to be like, here's this bar. Um, but I, I really quickly, um, few years ago, Western Carolina asked me to come and talk about my recovery story for a group of students and some of the staff and faculty and um, some associate dean of students was there as well. And um, I, I got done telling my, my story of being in, at Western and, and I mean, my whole high school, college, all of the struggles I had with substance use and um, at the end, this associate or assistant dean, I can't remember, like, he didn't apologize for what happened to me at Western, but he said, we no longer treat students who are struggling like that anymore. And it was like this like, really amazing moment to be able to come back to the school that had just nothing but negative memories um, and to be able to share that story. Um, also, you know, I ended up graduating from Southwestern Community College three or four years in recovery i came back up here and lived in silva no shit yeah for about a year um in recovery um and and it was it was weird uh, being back up here and um uh, without the use of substances and going to school and not missing class and doing really well um that was the most amazing thing about going back to southwestern in recovery was i did really really well i was a straight a student uh, except for one b that i got in statistics and that was another weird thing that happened was my statistics teacher at Southwestern Community College was actually somebody I'd gone to Western Carolina with. Oh, wow. Who had graduated from Western Carolina. <laughs> and so it was this like weird sort of dichotomy of like, hey, I'm doing the quote unquote, I don't want to say the right thing. I'm, I'm doing where my path led me now, right? Um, but here's a gentleman who graduated from Western within the four allotted years. And now he's a professor at Southwestern. And um, so my whole recovery, especially here in Silva, Cullowee, uh, even up to Waynesville and Asheville has been really sort of marked by these dichotomies of active use versus my recovery, um, my recovery back as a student and then coming back um, to do some of the really amazing advocacy work I've gotten to do with collegiate recovery. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a full circle moment graduating from SCC and then sitting down here with me for the past 30 minutes and talking about collegiate recovery at SCC. Yes. Has yeah. to be like, and, um, the idea that, uh, that SEC and, and I, you know, I wasn't involved in any of this when I was a student there either time, but just in general that our institutions are becoming supportive of recovery, um, because it was, and is such a thing that we try to push into the darkness, um, both institutionally and, um, just within our communities. So we might not want to talk about all this for whatever reason, um, but now here we see universities and community colleges stepping up and saying, no, we, we want to know about this. We want to talk about this. And it's not just little like portions of the state of North Carolina, but it's like an entire wave crossing the state. It's not just like one or two colleges. You're seeing it yeah. all over. And, and, and we have, um, let's see, like nine, 10, let's say 11 of our public universities with collegiate, full-blown collegiate recovery or some form of collegiate recovery or on-campus recovery support. Um, we have five community colleges that are just crushing it and other community colleges. I'm hearing from community colleges I didn't even know existed all throughout the state. <laughs> uh, at least once a week, Surrey Community College reached out, mm -hmm. Henderson, um, which Henderson and Hendersonville are two different places I've learned. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> Cape, Cape Fear Community College has reached out, and it's um, it, it's really cool that it's not just, you know. Yeah. You know. What um? So collegiate recovery is something that you are passionate about, mm-hmm. and what you're you work for addiction professionals in North Carolina. Yeah. Education director, director of education, director the, of scholastic recovery, the last director of scholastic recovery. Yes. So what does that mean? <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so I initially began this job and it was collegiate recovery program coordinator. And in that role, I was um, offering technical assistance, technical support to our six uh, universities that were initially funded by a grant. So many words. Uh, from a grant from the Division of Mental Health, Developmental Disabilities, and Substance Abuse Services. Um, And so initially, I was just working with those six institutions, which would have been, which still are, I apologize, UNC Chapel Hill, North Carolina A&T State University, UNC Greensboro, UNC Charlotte, UNC Wilmington, and East Carolina University. So initially the job was just working with those six, um, either doing like really basic things, recovery messaging training or uh, sustainability efforts, um, really basic stuff. And then we found out very quickly that there was a need for that same sort of support in the community colleges. Central Piedmont was one of the first to come to mind, SEC, AB Tech. Um, And so I was able to to expand beyond the, just those six universities. And so now I just get to do whatever university or college needs in terms of collegiate recovery support, whatever that looks like for that institution. Um, and so, so we had this first initial wave of collegiate recovery and then um, not sure, you know, if you've seen it yet, well, actually, yes, you, I think you were at one of the screenings of generation found mm-hmm. at Western Carolina. And so then the recovery high school thing sort of hit um, North Carolina. And, um, so I was able to then expand my role to all of scholastic recovery, doing that same efforts for the recovery high schools. Uh, one, hopefully opening in Charlotte, uh, that will be opening in Charlotte 2019 fall of this year. Um, right around the corner, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which is the Emerald school of excellence. And then wake Monarch Academy in wake County in 2020 fall of 2020. Back to back. Yeah. So we'll have all of a sudden we'll have recovery high schools and, we hope that they're not only successful, but we are sort of mapping what they're, the steps that they're taking. So when Greensboro and the triad area is like, we need a recovery high school. And then Asheville says, we want a recovery high school. We can show them the roadmap, much like we're going to be doing with um, collegiate recovery here in this next year. You already have a footprint that you can say, hey, this is what we've done. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. Absolutely. And and what's really neat about North Carolina's collegiate recovery is out of those six initially funded um, universities, we had six very different models from inception to sustainability. And so next year, we're going to be writing the story of each university and we'll create a roadmap for, hey, do you want yours to look like this or how much support do you have from administration? Yeah. Um, we have a roadmap for that. We have a roadmap for this. And we hope that that will sort of catch fire nationwide. Like looking at like what's your vision for this thing and then having a model to base it off of. Yeah, because what's been really interesting is like, so East Carolina University's collegiate. Shout recovery, out Jay. Yeah, that's right. Shout out Jay. Looks nothing like UNC Charlotte. Looks nothing like UNC Greensboro. But they all have the commonality of supporting students who are seeking recovery mm-hmm. or who are already in recovery. Um, so there's enough similarities that 
um, there's there's enough similarities that um, th they're all the same, but they're all so different. Like I can say, this is collegiate recovery. This is what it looks like. But then once we drill down, you start to see the individual differences. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I, I've noticed in the five years that I've been at SEC right. is that like the fluidity, fluidity of the thing and how it's always changing. Um, we we're kind of talking about how like some semesters we have like major involvement and some semesters not so much. They tend to show up for the social events more than they do for the support groups and like what could we do different and like at the community college level um, it's difficult because so many people here at SCC like drive in. They drive in from Waynesville or drive in from Cherokee so like they're they're it's a destination. They go to school they go home. Life is going on outside off of campus. Yep. Um, so like identifying, like we still haven't, I wouldn't say like locked in, like what specifically works. We know that for the social events, they'll show up. Like we do one social event a month outside of campus, out in the community, whether it's like bowling or hiking or camping, whatever we decide to do, they show up. We get 15 people. Mm. 12 to 15 people probably show up for each one of these events yep. on my Wednesday refuge recovery group. I'm happy if one or two show up, it's, right. a, it's, it's yeah. a good day, you know? Um, so like identifying that and people's class schedules are so different on a smaller community college level. You don't have such a smaller, um, student body population and they're like, they're trying to get in and out. So just like identifying, um, what works best. And it might not, it might be something that we're not doing. It might be something like, doing it on the, on a weekend or off campus, you know, like yeah. having these types of like support <clears throat> groups or meetings, you know, somewhere else doing it, something totally different. I think one of the biggest misconceptions of collegiate recovery is because this worked at institution A, it'll work at institution yeah. B. Um, Silva, Cullowhee, the Western part of the state, um, behaves very, very differently than where I'm from in Raleigh. Um, all North Carolinians, um, we don't all think the same and we don't all see things the same. And, and I made one gigantic mistake really early on in my careers. I was out in the Western part of the state talking about the resources that we had in Raleigh. And I, I didn't read the room very well. And I had said something about public transportation and it, this woman stood up and she goes, we don't have any public transportation here. She's like, we can't do that. What are you talking about? And I was like, yeah. right. And so, and so creating a, you know, creating the culture that uh, the collegiate recovery culture that matches the culture of the community as well. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I found out really interesting here when I was in Silva, just as a student in recovery was I was attending 12-step meetings at the time, and I would go to a 12-step meeting in Silva, and it would be one person, and they may be twice my age. And so I wasn't really able to, to connect with the <clears throat> at-large recovery community here. And so I believe in those areas, collegiate recovery is even more important because at NC State, um, when I was doing collegiate recovery stuff at NC State, man, there's 10, 20, 30 meetings within walking distance mm -hmm. of campus every week. Um, with young people attending them. And so to say that, oh, NC State does this, you know, Southwestern should do that as well would be straight up ignorant. Yeah. And, and you raise a good point too about, you know, they show up for the social stuff, but not, 
you just never know what's going to what's going to connect and connect with students that are turning over so quickly mm-hmm. as well and talked about. Let me ask you this. Are there campuses that um, faculty are invo- involved or welcome to participate? What type of like, because we've, I've had probably more interest from faculty hmm. who are in recovery. Um, That's really interesting. Um, and like, what's, you know what I mean? Just like, as far as. So, so no collegiate recovery program that I know of currently um, does any sort of tailoring towards faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know, like I was just at AB Tech and um, Sharon um, yeah. was telling me up there, she said that they actually get a lot more inquiries about faculty in recovery than students currently. Um, like people just like, hey, what's up with this? Yeah. Um, and so there's also a need for that as well. Um, I, I keep hearing from people that more and more faculty are coming out about their recovery. Um, I know at NC State, two of our biggest advocates were people in recovery um, for collegiate recovery at NC State. Yet they were still hesitant to fully throw mm-hmm. themselves in the same way students do. And I don't know if that's keeping boundaries. Um, do do faculty and students, should faculty yeah. and students in recovery? Um, what are the appropriate boundaries? I mean, I, who knows? <laughs> um, but, you know, the one interesting thing at NC State was there was a professor who was never able to make her meetings and she kind of got sick of it. So she started a meeting in her own, a 12 step meeting in her own building. Okay. Um, it, she, the entire time she was a professor there, it was just this Tuesday meeting at 5.30 p.m. She created it so she could go. Fit it into her schedule. Yeah, fit it yeah. in her. She said, uh-huh. you know, what was that old saying? If you don't like a meeting, you can yeah. you get a coffee pot and start your own. Yeah. And so she essentially did that. And, um, you know, she, as we began to talk about collegiate recovery, she had a really hard time understanding why students would need something more than just the on-campus meeting. Um, and so we also see that sometimes as well, um, faculty who, um, came up in a different recovery pathway and they like to keep their work in that part of their life and their recovery totally separate. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, it's once again, no black or white. Um, and the other thing too, is, you know, coordinators, collegiate recovery coordinators who are in recovery themselves, <coughs> what is their role within collegiate recovery um, as a professional, but also as somebody who, you know. Yeah. That's something I'm, I've struggled with a little bit just as my um, role as an intern mm. for the program is like um, confidentiality and like what, you know, as I'm having conversations with like my supervisors, mm-hmm. like what, so I really have to having to use my best judgment, not on like specifics of like what disclosure, but just about like what is taking place behind the scenes right? in the student body. Um, it's like, a, it's a juggling act and I really have to look at kind of um, what I say and what I don't say. I have to be very cautious of what I say and what I don't say, but at the same time, like, um, our administrator or our advisor is 
a confidential, what do we call it? Like a, a confidential, confidential reporter. reporter. Yep. So yep. like a safe place to go and talk and vent and things like that. So right. it's like, there are layers of protection, I guess. But like, you know what I mean? It's just kind of one of those things where I'm like, but we're figuring that since we just started it a year ago, we're three semesters in now officially. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of like, we're kind of like figuring that out as we go, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the really interesting things... So this is Kendall. She's going to snap a couple of photos of us. Thanks, um, one of the really interesting things, and I think that you may be experiencing this a little bit, um, is that sometimes we see students graduating from a collegiate recovery program and then going straight into the field of collegiate mm-hmm. recovery. Yeah. And they have a hard time forgetting that now that they're in charge, so to speak. Yeah. They're no longer a student. Yeah. So things I would have normally have said to a student... Um, where I would, where I could joke around and kind of cut up a little bit. Um, all of a sudden there's a professional, there should be a professional boundary there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a code of ethics that you're working underneath from the university or the college or exactly. whoever. Like uh-huh. As, as a professional, you mm-hmm. cannot say X, but I'm used to saying X to student, you know? So, mm-hmm. Um, and you'll notice I use a lot of variables in my examples because I don't want to put out anything that sounds too specific. Um, and I had the same challenge too, is when I first stepped into this role, even though it was a macro statewide role, I knew so many students at each university. And so initially I, I was spending time with the students and that felt comfortable. Um, but now I'm, you know, I've been in this role for a little while and I can't even name you know, students at universities by name anymore, unless for whatever reason I've met them or worked with them. But um, thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, but you're, you know, you're now in that internship role. Yeah, like you're, yeah. so, so it's just really interesting how, you know, as people in recovery who are passionate about collegiate recovery and are passionate about this whole thing, like all of a sudden we have to be professional in a place where we're not comfortable being professional. It's really, I haven't really given it a lot of thought, but as you brought it up, I'm like, man, it's tricky. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. It's figuring out. And like, I'm not, I've talked, talked to Lori a lot just in the last, over the last semester about like, you know, we're at the point now where like, um, we need to start looking at like creating an SOP and kind of looking at like what we do and what we don't do and having it like a black and white, like system, you know, cause yeah. like, stuff's come up, yeah. you know? Um, and I think, uh, so as, as, uh, when I was doing the collegiate recovery stuff as a student organization at NC state, um, one of the things that you find out very quickly is that, um, when collegiate recovery is a student organization, things come up that are not appropriate for students to be handling, um, mental health crises, uh, re- returned reoccurrence of use, um, all of this stuff where, um, it's, you know, and a lot of times these are coming out of helping profession majors programs, and stuff yeah. and programs. And um, as a social work major, I probably knew just enough to get myself and the, the other students <laughs> into a whole lot of trouble, right? <laughs> Even though I'd already graduated with a human services degree, um, you know, I was just sort of in that next role of professional development and um, I didn't know how to handle like love triangles, huh? <gasps> you know? It's like, hey, so-and-so did this, and now so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't know how to handle all that. You know, that's not something I ever actually even learned about. They didn't right? train you on that, did they? No, nope. and nothing <laughs> will bring collegiate recovery down faster than um, 
than unrequited love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll get messy quickly. So good times. What? When you were attending NC State, so mm-hmm. you found recovery mm-hmm. and you enrolled at NC State mm. shortly <laughs> after graduating over here. So, well, oh gosh. Um, so I found recovery um, and didn't know what to do with myself. I couldn't, um, you know, I, I, I worked as a barista at Starbucks, which when you're early in recovery is like the job. Mm-hmm. Um, it was unlimited coffee. It was flexible hours. Um, decent my, pay. Decent pay. Yeah. My boss uh, was an Al-Anon. Uh, so I was like, I need to go to a meeting. She'd be like, all right, get out of here. Um, so a uh, lot, of, lot of stuff happened. And uh, I, somebody once told me in my recovery journey that I had never completed anything in my life except for treatment. And the truth is, I had never even really completed a full treatment. I had gotten kicked out of two treatment centers and left another one early. So I had actually never completed anything in my life. And so I came back to Southwestern just to get the two-year degree, and that was going to be it, just the two-year general ed. Um, And I did it. Um, I had a 1.7 GPA when I came back to Southwestern. I was able to pull that up to a 2.1 straight A mm-hmm. student uh, with one B in statistics. Um, and I found out that school was really easy um, when I attended, when I showed up and um, wasn't under the influence when I attended. And uh, so I, I um, met um, my now partner, Ashley, um, at a concert and uh, I moved to Raleigh to be with her. And attended Wake Tech Community Colleges, where I got my two-year human services substance use counseling degree. And then I tried to enroll into NC State, um, into the social work program at NC State. And NC State um, was like, hey, we noticed that you've been charged with felony. We noticed that you have a DUI. We also noticed that you have like zero leadership um, and that you can't explain where you were for like four or five years. Um, we just, we would like some information And so I told them, um, I started off my explanation letter by saying, you know, my name is Chris Campo. I'm an alcoholic, but it's okay. I'm sober now. Here's what happened with my arrest. Here's what happened with my DUI. Here's where I was. Um, I can't speak to any leadership. (laughs) And um, NC State told me um, that I can't go to school there. Um, they, They just thought that's something else. And it was right then that I learned about collegiate recovery. It's a really long story, but um, I was able to attend NC State as a non-degree seeking student um, for a year to prove I could do the work. And I reapplied at NC State. And um, and it was during that year of uh, as being a non-degree um, seeking student that I started the collegiate recovery community. Um, I started a student organization and I received the... Uh, at the time, Stacy Mathewson Grant, now Transforming Youth Recovery. Um, how, start, how, how did you get involved? Like, where did that concept or idea come from to to do collegiate to re- move forward? Yeah. Uh, so, I um, was doing an internship at a facility that was uh, now called Healing Transitions. It used to be the Healing Place of Wake County. And my certified clinical supervisor, uh, Chris Budnick, I went to him and said, "Hey, NC State's not letting me come to school there." And he said, I don't know anything about it. He's like, but how about for the rest of your internship here, you research collegiate recovery. 
And so at that same exact time, my friend at UNC Charlotte, Hillary Belk, um, who actually I'm staying with in Asheville this week, um, was doing the collegiate recovery work at UNC Charlotte. So I went down to UNC Charlotte and I said, what is this collegiate recovery deal? What is all of this? And so I started to get names and numbers and um, ended up flying out to Texas Tech for a conference, the Association of Recovery and Higher Education Conference, the fourth annual one. And um, I met, oh gosh, Teresa Johnson from Kennesaw State, and Kristen Harper, who was at Texas Tech at the time, um, Daniel Fred <clears throat> from UNI, University of Nevada, Reno, and uh, Matt Statman from, from University of Michigan, just all these collegiate recovery people from all over the country. Back then it was... I mean, it was small. I mean, yeah. that conference was maybe 60, 70 people, whereas now we need entire, like, gigantic conference centers to hold that conference. And I told everybody this story about how I couldn't get into NC State. And they said, well, why don't you just come to school here? Like, that's cool. Like... <laughs> like you're a great student. Like we can see that through your transcripts. Like you flew all the way to Lubbock, Texas for a conference. Like we know you'll be a great student. And, uh, but I, you know, I just, there were certain things that were keeping me in Raleigh, namely my, my wife's amazing job, my partner's amazing job. Um, and, and at the same time, UNC Chapel Hill was starting collegiate recovery too. And Chapel Hill was like, Oh, well you could come to Chapel Hill. And I was like, no, I can't. I was like, I'm not a Tar Heel. I'll never be a Tar Heel. Duke plays Carolina tonight. I don't want to start a whole thing. Um, but so anyway, so I, I don't know what the drive was, but I just thought that it was super uncool that I had done everything I could to, to eliminate the mistakes of my past. I had paid, you know, my debts, quote unquote, um, and I was ready to move on and become a part of society with a four-year degree. And, you know, I had graduated. I already had two degrees. Um, and the fact that NC State just wasn't seeing it was really frustrating. And so that was the real desire to start the collegiate recovery. A, a for the recovery support, of course. But B, so that no student who has had my past, similar to my past, would have to go through what I went through just to... to uh, get an education. Um, and, you know, I, I ended up getting into NC State because the second time I applied, I was able to point to three semesters as a non-degree seeking student with straight A's. And the other thing I did is in my explanation letter, as opposed to saying, you know, my name is Chris Campo and I'm an alcoholic, I said, my name is Chris Campo and I'm a person in sustained recovery, which to me means that I have not used alcohol and other drugs since May of 2006. And I didn't beg for admittance. I said, other universities want me. I have done so much work for NC State as y'all were pushing me away to start recovery supports on campus for students. Um, and I felt empowered. I didn't feel powerless for the first time in my life. The ball was in your court. It was. And, mm -hmm. and, if, and if NC State didn't take me this time, I had letters with you know, other universities' letterheads on them saying, we'll take them tomorrow. Some of the schools said, with scholarship money. And NC State, the board understood that. And what's been really great is moving forward as I've worked with other students at NC State, the board has mentioned recovery when asking for um, explanation letters from students with a um, felonious <laughs> past um, where they said, hey, you know, what are you going to do to protect your recovery now that you're on, if you make it onto campus? And like, 
it's a priority to them because they they understand the importance mm -hmm. of having those things in place. Yeah. Is that itch, man? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's getting a little itchy. Um, so go ahead, go ahead and share what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Yo. All right. So for starters, I, I I've got the dates nailed down. January twenty fourth, I was uh, on a lunch break bike ride, and I was pretending like I was twenty, and I was trying to do this mountain biking course that was way too hard, and I fell and cracked a rib. This is not what I hurt my wrist. <laughs> It, exactly one week later with a cracked rib, I was back on my bike and I was going around a turn and my back tire hit um, a patch of wet leaves and I full on supermaned off my bike and bounced off the pavement um, and broke, um, pretty much shattered my right wrist. So, um, so I've been having a good time um, learning how to become, not become left-handed, but learning how to do everything with just my left hand. No longer right hand dependent. No, no that's <laughs> right. That's right. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, so, what was the what was the the overall time at NC State? The time that you spent there. What were you able to to achieve through collegiate recovery? Actually, let me step back a little bit. What changed? What inspired you to write that second letter and change your approach? Was it the empowerment from talking with? all those other programs and having some confidence because you knew other people wanted you? Was it, was it a skill, something you learned? Mm -hmm. I, there, it was the perfect confluence of events. I would say it was the introduction to collegiate recovery that, that this was out here and that students were succeeding and, and being treated with dignity um, at universities. And the other thing that happened was um, the creation of the first and second annual Rally for Recovery in Raleigh. Um, it, it went right along with the release of the film, The Anonymous People, and recovery communities in North Carolina at the time didn't have a name. Um, it was very slow, very early on, but we um, began with the mission of showing the anonymous people in all 100 North Carolina counties and following it up with messaging, with uh, community recovery messaging training. And I became a trainer for those messaging trainings. So I was going all around the state showing the film, The Anonymous People. I think that's when you came here and I met you. Yeah, and, and then I was doing the, the community messaging training. Um, and I, oh, and this was a woman who worked at the Governor's Institute on Substance Abuse, um, Jessica Herman, um, called me out of the blue and was like, hey, we want to, like, we want you to go places and, like, tell your recovery story, um, and we want to pay you to do it. And uh, it, it was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I couldn't figure out what she was, what, what she you, saw in me. What are your intentions here? Yeah, yeah. I was like, uh -huh. I, I was just, it was all very confusing to me. And, and she brought me out to Western Carolina um, where I was able to tell my recovery story, which is where I met Christy Wyatt. Um, and I, and I'm, and to be truthful, I was actually a very angry, angry, angry advocate back then. And uh, Jessica Herman was like, we love your anger. We love your advocacy, but we're going to need you to chill out a little bit. We're going to need you to, to know when it's okay to be angry and when it's okay to, um, 
and and she empowered me to come and do this work and to make me feel like I had value and this work had value. So between the anonymous people, the messaging training, um, Jessica Herman sort of teaching me how to um, not just be angry and yelling guy, um, all of that empowered me to say, NC State, you need me more than I need you. I have other options now. And in in at the very like 36,000 foot level at the very macro level to me recovery is is really nothing more than having the choices to not being so locked into this is my only option um to have the freedom to to move jobs to say hey I don't have to just stay here like or I can move or um I think that's really what recovery gives us more than anything are just the options to live our life. It's the clarity to see that that's available Mm -hmm. and to know that that's available. Cause like I found recovery in 30 days later after leaving treatment, I packed up my bags and I moved three States from Florida to here to start college. Right. And like in active addiction, I mean, I always had a good job and I always, Mm. And my mom was always on to me about, you need to go to, you should go to college. You really should go to college. You, I think you, you know, your brother did so good at college. You really should go to college. And it was always just like, I would have never even attempted to go to school, much less move three states away, right. away from my friends and away from my family. I mean, I was the the drunken dude, like, I'm never leaving. I love this town. Tampa's awesome. <laughs> I love the bars here, Ebor city. You know, I was just like, (laughs) I was, I'm never leaving. I was that dude, you know? And then as soon as I found recovery and I saw what was out there in the world and I saw these recovery communities that were, um, taking place. And that was a big, a big draw to what brought me to North Carolina was the kind of recovery communities and things that were happening up here. Um, but I would have never seen that. I would have never, the thought wouldn't have crossed my mind. And it's really interesting too. You were just talking about that. I was that guy. And, and I think one of the things that um, that lifestyle gives you is an identity. Like yeah. I had such an identity when I was a student here at Western Carolina. I still hear about it, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, and like my parents came up for parents week at one time and they were like, everybody on this campus knows you. Like, and I was like, um, it, 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 but it, that was my it's a small town. Mom. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and back then, Western was teeny tiny, um, but it was it was really um, who I was. I didn't know mm-hmm. what life was going to look like if I if I shed that identity of of party, yeah, party Chris. So, well, I'm glad you did. Thank you. <laughs> I am too. So are my parents, actually. Um, so what was the you you got into you got into um, NC State yep. and you started the student organization? Yeah. What was like your initial like groundwork? to build the program? How did you, cause there wasn't a whole lot, you didn't have the resources available to you that say we do right now. I, I would say we made one of the single biggest mistakes you can make with collegiate recovery. Me and, and the co-founder, um, the, the gentleman who was helping me, um, was we became a strictly advocacy organization. We, we were 100% uh, talking to provosts and vice provosts and directors and deans um, about the importance of uh, not, you know, we, we, we never talked about addiction, only talking about the importance of recovery. That 
when we had students who wanted to join, we would have parents who would call um, and say, hey, my son or daughter wants to get involved in collegiate recovery. We'd be like, great, bring them on. And we would instantly be like, all right, cool. Here's recovery community messaging. We want you to, next time you're in class and somebody uses the term substance abuse or, you know, somebody makes a, a comment about, you know, junkies or, you know, whatever. Like, we want you to speak up. And um, I wish, you know, I wish we had done a better job of just the peer-to-peer, -peer, what collegiate recovery really is. Mm -hmm. We were so focused on advocacy and getting recognition and, building a program that we, you know, that we missed the most fundamental tenet of collegiate recovery, which is just supporting the next person in recovery. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I hope we didn't do anybody any harm. Um, like really hope we didn't do anybody any harm by not being able to be that support. Um, but at the time we were just so focused on, on the advocacy piece. And not just the advocacy, but filling out all the paperwork to begin the student organization. And, um, and at the same time, I'm um, getting the Transforming Youth Recovery Grant. And the other really interesting thing about that grant was at $10,000 with, and, and you were not allowed to take any administrative costs. Nobody on campus wanted to touch it mm -hmm. because it wasn't big enough to bring into NC State. The kind of things I'd heard is like, yeah, we don't normally touch grants for less than like a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, so you had to sell it to them. Yeah, well, to and, accept and, it. And, and fortunately, the social work department was like, oh, we'll take it, no worries, you know, yeah. <laughs> like of course. And the, and the social work department um, at NC State um, has always been really accepting of collegiate recovery. Has always been accepting of the recovery student, the recovery <clears throat> story, um, and they too see it um, as a social justice issue as well. Um, and, and well, and the other interesting thing about social work, um, is, is not traditionally great at dealing with addiction and recovery. Um, I, so, so that's another avenue that we're sort of trying to move into is social workers deal with problems that arise from alcohol and other Often. drug issues. Yeah. Like the majority <laughs> of the time. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to do our part to educate social workers while they're still at the university level so that they don't go out and start doing the work um, and then have to be sort of, you know, unlearn what they've learned and then trained again and mm -hmm. addiction and recovery services. So many different avenues to pursue mm -hmm. um, from the advocacy work to the messaging training to the, you know, stigma to dealing with the, medical providers so that they can you know it's just like i mean oftentimes i'm just like i just throw my hands out i was like where where do we even start it's, you know like so and I, I so many people come to this table where you're sitting that are doing like some of the greatest work in our state i have these conversations with them and there's just barrier after barrier and they're trying so hard but i'm trying i'm doing this but you know and it's always just like we kind of talked a little bit before before we started but like how do we how do we begin to collaborate more from agency to agency from me the dude in a comfort in um conference room you know how do we how do we collaborate more with each other i mean it's obviously i think it's also just like 
a social issue that society is dealing with as its own. It's like, hey, like my label, I'm, I'm in recovery. This is my crew, my people. We are in recovery. And then there's, you know, whoever, left, right, this person, that person. Everybody identifies with something. And it's more of like identifying like the differences. We... So what? Twenty minutes ago, or whatever, I had made this really horrible comment about how much I hate the Tar Heels, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I, and I think that the uh, the ability to spot differences is so innate in every human being. It's, I mean, the the, the brain science points it out. Yeah. If if you are different than me, uh, I have immediate amygdala activation, which activates fear. And what we see is, and this has been a real issue in the professional side of this, is, you know, group X, and here's a variable again, I apologize. Uh, let's go ahead and say group R <laughs> doesn't always play great with group P, who doesn't always play great with group T or group HR, right? Um, we, we all have different ideas of how this thing should go. And because this isn't a, 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 like a business where we can we can check like profit right per loss and financial loss and gain the impacts aren't as measurable right we all still believe that we're right and i said this is the way to do it and i don't care if you disagree because this is the way i'm going to do it and one of the biggest things i think in this field both professionally and you know at the layman level is that we hold our work so sacred that anything else feels like a threat. Um, I know that a lot of individuals in abstinence-based recovery see medication-assisted recovery as a threat, you know, or just harm reduction in general as a threat. Uh, syringe exchanges or safe injection sites, safe consumption sites um, as a threat. And it's not a threat. It's it, We're all bonding healthy communities. Like, I think if we just painted this all as like a healthy community situation, as opposed to, I'm right, we need to do it my pathway, we need to do it my way, um, you know, we may see some better results. But the other issue, too, is that we're always chasing grants, we're always chasing dollars, we're always chasing donors. Um, and sometimes we, unfortunately, and I applaud people who don't, but every now and then you see a really great agency, quote unquote, sell their soul for the dollar to keep their doors open, mm -hmm. just to keep their doors open. Um, and it's hard. <clears throat> I presented at a conference yesterday and, and we were talking about the opioid crisis. And this was at an aging adult conference. The Council on Aging Adults, I believe, was um, not my population normally. And some woman <laughs> became so furious that she said, how come every time there's this brand new crisis and she must have opiate whatever other crisis is, she goes, how come every time there's a crisis, my budget gets cut for the work I'm trying to do? And I was like, oh, no. I, and I made it really clear. I don't, I, I, I'm not advocating for anybody's budget to be cut to handle this situation. It shouldn't be either or. It should be and. Mm -hmm. It should be like, you get to take care of your population and your population who's struggling with opiates. You know, we, we get to take care of mental illness and individuals su suffering from substance use. We don't have to, excuse me, we don't have to start divvying up the, the limited funds that we already have. We need to figure out how to use all of our financial um, 
resources and our bandwidth all together as opposed to separately. And if you take a step back and look at it objectively, like that's, it's an overall like health crisis, whether it's um, nutrition or substance use or depression or PTSD or whatever it is, it's a health, health issue. It's not a, you know? Yeah. And, and you still see so many people that are, um, willing to blame people with substance use disorder. And, and I think we've actually seen a shift in that where most people now view it as the brain disorder that it is when they're, you know, talking, but then like deep down, they're still like, well, why can't they just get it together? Mm -hmm. You know, I just had this amazing opportunity um, to hear a, a young, um, a young woman speak about um, being a pregnant, being a pregnant woman who was um, using opiates and the amount of shame. I, I, she said shame. I say bravery that it to overcome the amount of shame that she was facing to go and talk to her doctor and say, I can't quit using what do I do to make sure I have a healthy baby and to reach out for help. Um, and she, you know, through step down um, with medication assisted treatment delivered a baby who was free of any neonatal withdrawals. Um, and the young, the young one's over two years old now, both her and, and mama are super happy. And, you know, I don't remember what the point of that story was. Um, but it was just that I, I, I continued to hear these amazing stories. Oh, and she kept saying she could feel the looks of judgments. Like if she loved her child, she could just quit. Even if people understood it as a brain disorder, they still believed that a mother would be able to overcome all that stuff. And, and all that does is just add layers and layers of shame, layers of guilt, layers of stress, which we all know lead to more recurrences of use. Yeah. That's a cycle. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, there's definitely a shift in it, you know, within like a national publication will write a story about, uh, Narcan, and then there'll be a thousand comments underneath it talking about you're just enabling them. Why are you giving it to them? You know, so it's like you're seeing that shift, but it's like not as, not as it's not happening as rapidly as we would like it to. Mm -hmm. um, however, I do think that there is, uh, societally speaking, you're seeing a clearer understanding of like the disease model. Right now, I listened to a, an interesting podcast like two weeks ago on Sam Harris's podcast he had a psychiatrist with it by the name of sally satel it's okay. worth going back and listening to it sam harris uh the title is the problem of addiction okay and she's a psychiatrist out of california i believe and sh she's her her point was that um we have so we we have the choice model and then we have the disease model and now like we've shifted it all We've, we're overemphasizing mm -hmm. the um, brain disease model mm -hmm. and we're like not putting enough emphasis on kind of like the social connection and the social bonds and, and that sort of thing. It was an interesting perspective. It was something that I had not heard in all of the discussions of choice or disease, choice or disease. It was, it was an angle that I hadn't heard before. <clears throat> <clears throat> the, the social aspect of, of, of recovery. Um, but so from a, 
One of the most interesting things about about 12-step recovery is that I found that the majority of things that the 12-steps figured out really early on were now starting to be able to back up with the neuroscience. Yeah. Like they were like, oh, you know, um, my uh, my aunt who's in recovery at her home group, uh, after five years of recovery, they'd give you your marbles. They'd give you a bag of marbles because it was at five years of recovery is when you got your marbles back. Yeah. <laughs> right now, neuroscience sort of backs that up too. Is that, I man, after five years, like a lot of that damage has been redone. Like your uh-huh. prefrontal cortex is back where it should be for the most part. Um, you, you're making clearer decisions. And like neuroscience is backing up a lot of the stuff that, and one of those things about that social connection <clears throat> is you know the the firing of the limbic system right the that we used to get alcohol to do artificially you get to uh, oxytocin release and those hugs that you can get now in recovery those those actual connections with other human beings that used to be made through alcohol and were fake i, I don't want to say fake but because i have still plenty of friends that were part of my partying network as well but you know, like, you know how it was, like, when you were just hammered and you're like, man, I love this guy. Like, he's my homie. And then you wake up the next morning, you're like, I hate that guy, right? <laughs> but like, now those connections are real. And you, without knowing it, you're creating accountability to the people in your life. And I think this social aspect is more than just the getting out of your own head or doing service work. Um, I, I think there's really something to it. I, um, I'm not a person that, uh, you know, is really touchy feely. I'm not, that's not who I am, but whatever that feeling is when I pick up my now 20 month old daughter and she giggles or she just, whatever it is that she does is a feeling that I, I I can't describe. And I know it's just creating a connection. Mm -hmm. My brain is saying, Hey man, these are your genes. You have to do whatever you can to protect this little one. Um, all the oxytocin release, all that feel good. Um, it's remarkable. And if you can find those kind of social connections in recovery, the real meaningful social connections in recovery, you build that network of people that, um, that you would, I, I don't want to, because this kind of makes it sound like a choice, but if there was a situation where you got yourself into some trouble, you know, you, you could kind of lean back on saying like, nah, those people care about me and I don't want to, I don't want to upset them. Yeah. (laughs) I wish that I kind of documented this process a little bit better over the last like year, year and a half um, in like through journaling or whatever. But the what's taken place on my personal recovery by just having this podcast starting off once a week and now twice a week where I sit down with somebody who I identify as like a leader in our community or an interesting person or somebody that's doing good work that I would just like that I reach out to, to have a conversation like we're having today uninterrupted. The phones are on the table. We're looking each other in the eyes. We're just shooting the shit, Mm -hmm. but just doing that twice a week for an hour to two hours has elevated my so many factors in my life has elevated my moods and my perception of like my life and that sort of thing. And then to see the individuals who tune into the show and like, while we're talking, they're having a little conversation down here and relationships are being built Mm. through watching this. And then to see them like out in the community together doing things and like making, so like the show creates those connections 
because they met through this little chat bubble or because they were on the show, they were exposed to somebody else that's interested in the work that they're doing. It's been like a, um, this like domino effect to, and to sit back and experience it personally myself, but then to watch it come to fruition out in the community has done more than like all those damn refuge recovery meetings that I went to all those hours of meditation that I did. Now, granted, I wouldn't be here had I not done all that stuff. So I'm not like, I'm not, you know, but I just, I notice a significant difference in the conversation from the conversation. And so just a little bit of personal stuff. Uh, when I was about three years into recovery, I, um, left organized 12 step recovery. And the very first thing that hit me was how painfully alone I was, how painfully alone I felt. I, um, <clears throat> I, at first I was very resentful that none of my network was reaching out to me. And then after a while of reflection, it, it must have been scary for them. They were, they were, I thought that they were worried about me, but I realized that they were really worried about themselves too. Um, and so the most important thing, and I think you were just talking about this was how do I create a network of people that I can just like get down with? (laughs) How do I find, you know, we use this term so much that it's almost cliche, but how do I find my tribe? And what was really interesting was I found a bunch of individuals um, who weren't even necessarily in recovery, but who under couldn't understand at the same level, right? But were so supportive of everything I was doing professionally and personally um, that it, it, it was remarkable um, how much I was creating my own sort of recovery network and, and, and what that would look like and, and, and it not being, you know, all just recovering people. Um, yeah, you, you took yourself out of the box yeah. and you exposed yourself to the world of people who had similar interests, mm-hmm. who you could create. An, once you learned how to create an authentic connection, you're yeah. able to expand and open that up yes. and kind of walk out of the, the dark smoke filled rooms of <laughs> yeah. the 12 step community and come into who, and, who you truly wanted to be. And it was... And, and actually, you know, I, I think I had a really good 12-step sponsor as well, because one time he told me really early on, he goes, if if this relationship goes correctly, he's like, you're not going to need me. He's like, you're not going to need meetings for a recovery. He's like, you'll need those only to find the newcomers. And I I, I don't think this was his intention was for me to walk away. Um, but yeah, but, he, but it occurred to me that, you know, my recovery... Um, it just, I felt more comfortable just with, with people outside of recovery mm-hmm. to be able to learn how to just come out and play in the regular world and not just in the recovery. But I, and at the same time, I get phone calls all the time from people who are like, I really want to, I'm thinking about leaving 12 steps. How did you do it? Blah, blah, this, that, or whatever. <laughs> I say that I don't live a normal life. Yeah. I yeah. Like my entire life is recovery. I've been around people in recovery all day today. Um, you know, from, from what I was up to at AB tech, um, down to here, um, you know, the, the mo- the worst thing I've done today that was non-recovery related was take that picture of O'Malley's for my friend. Right. Um, but everything else has been recovery related today. So yeah, you're living it, but, and also like 
being able to like expose yourself to those individuals um, and create those relationships with individuals that aren't in that air quotes recovery box. Um, it's an opportunity for you to like be that advocate that you are professionally mm-hmm. and it's like own your recovery. Like, Hey, I'm a person in recovery and like, this is how I live my life. And yeah. we're, we're homeboys. And you know <laughs> what I mean? Like that's, it's an opportunity to like advocate on a, um, individual kind of personal level. And, and I, and I come in contact with a lot of people who, um, <clears throat> haven't really run into recovery. Um, I can't tell you how many times I'll be at a concert or a sporting event or, or something to that nature where people will just start saying things. They're like, Oh, look at this homeless dude. Like, God, I can't believe blah, blah. If he could just get a job, like, really hurtful things and like I kind of let him go and then I'll be like yeah I remember when I was homeless in Florida and they're like wait you were homeless and then I'm able to tell a little bit about my story just a little bit about um how I got to be um a person that was experiencing acute homelessness not chronic acute homelessness um and the struggles I had and I hope that those individuals walk away with just a different perception of um individuals experiencing homelessness or substance use disorder yeah what, um, how long after you graduated NC State did you accept this job at APNC? Oh, it was, uh, nine months. Okay. Nine months of, of terror. Applying for jobs and well, stuff? Yeah, applying what? for jobs. And there had been like rumors that this position around collegiate recovery was going to be created. And I, I was like, all right, you know, if, if, the, if this job's going to open up, like I'll, I think I'll be perfect for it. Um, but yeah, exactly nine months, um, after graduation, I took this position mm-hmm. and actually super lucky, right? Like timing. Yeah. Um, timing. Um, one thing, if there's any students who are listening to this, um, just network, 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 create your professional network while you're still in school. Um, the ability for me to, to have the contacts I had were far in a way um more relevant than partially more relevant than some of the education i received but you didn't like they weren't just handed to you like you worked for them. no no yeah 100 <laughs> yeah. percent. like i didn't just be like oh let me meet all the right people um no i had to get to the into the right meetings yeah. into the right rooms present uh, yourself well all those things yeah <laughs> uh i i had somebody tell me um when I was at NC State, because uh, I was, I think I was like 32, 33 when I started at NC State, and I was talking to some some traditional age students, and I was like, man, I feel so old, like blah blah blah, and they're like, well, you don't look old, and I was like, oh, that's good. They're like, look at you. They're like, you dress like a like a frat boy, and I was like, wait, what? They're like, it's your with your khakis and your polo shirts and uh, your visors, and I was like, oh no, like part of me was like, oh, that's kind of cool, you know? They don't see me as, but at the same time, I was like, I can't you're dressed like this, you know, I have to dress professionally. I, you know, and that's another thing I think that, you know, when we talk about recovery, we're not just talking about the, you know, removal of drugs and alcohol or the removal of problematic behaviors. Um, now I'm no, you know, sellout, like I'm still going to rock my beard. And, but if I want to be taken seriously in certain arenas, I have to Mm -hmm. present, fit the role. I have to fit the role. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, um, one of the biggest kind of 
things that I felt ashamed of when I came into the field was I would go to these conferences and I'd be the only one that, and no judgment, like I swear to God, no judgment, but I'd be the only one that smelled like smoke or would have to leave to go smoke. And, um, you know, I was finally able to, to give up cigarettes, uh, November of 2018, fingers crossed. Um, but, um, and that was also partially due to, you know, my daughter being born and, um, but that was a huge sense of shame for me was that I was at these conferences on addiction and there was this huge addiction that I couldn't quit. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I'm always so strength-based and empowered. Um, and I'm like, no shame in my game, but really <laughs> that, that cigarette smoking, you was, felt a little bit of that. There was a whole mm -hmm. lot of shame there for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So. I can relate, man. Yeah, yeah. Smoking cigarettes is quitting cigarettes is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It's way harder than crack cocaine. Yeah. Way oh, yeah. harder than alcohol. Yeah. I, um, I feel like um, one of the biggest reasons why is because I had yet to to cross any of my imaginary moral lines with yeah. cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just recently started smoking again after two years. Oh, man. Of not smoking. Just w like a week ago. Oh. <laughs> Dude, Lori Clancy, I love you. You are the best instructor that I've ever had. And I've learned so much from you over my five years at SEC. However, in my substance abuse counseling class, so I quit smoking cigarettes two years ago for the vape. Mm. I did the vape for... A little right around two years in about sometime late January, first week of February, I was like, all right, I'm ready to I'm get off the vape. So I started doing the nicotine lozenges. Mm -hmm. Worked extremely well. Right. Like totally um, annihilated any craving of, of smoking. Like I was I was doing extremely well on them. Took like the higher dose four milligram one for like three weeks feeling good about it dropped down to the two milligram another two weeks and i was like okay i'm i'm good and then i just switched over to sugar-free breath mints right yeah. so i was like about two weeks nicotine free no lozenges no nothing and Lori drops this assignment on us <laughs> okay listen to me 10 day challenge I want you to give something up for 10 yeah. days because for substance abuse counseling class, yeah, yeah. if you're going to ask somebody to change your behavior, I want to, I want you to know what it's like, right? So the, the assignment is to give something up for 10 days and then write a paper about it. Right. So uh, I had like been experimenting with re coffee reduction because right, yeah. I'm like an all day, like fill the cup up, you know, until I lay my head down. <laughs> and um so i was like all right uh, 10 days i just got i just got over the nicotine i'm like 10 days let's do coffee i could do coffee for 10 days i like drinking hot tea you know so like the first like four or five days piece of cake man fire up my tea kettle in the morning drink a cup of chai tea or something head out the door and i'm good to go and i didn't say caffeine free i just said coffee free right, so yeah, like later yeah. in the afternoon i could have a soda or you yeah. know monster or something bro after like the fifth day my nicotine cravings, nicotine, Ooh, nicotine cravings just shot through the roof, like totally um, extreme nicotine mm. cravings. And it had been 
a couple weeks without any nicotine whatsoever. So I, I, I bummed a smoke from somebody. You oh. know where you know where that goes, right? Yeah. You know where that yeah. goes. So it's been like about ten days, and I haven't been smoking like a pack a day like right. I was, yeah, but yeah. consistently smoking. Yeah. And so now spring break is over on Sunday. I'm going to be um, getting back on the lozenges nice. on Monday. But it's just like how, you know, by get so the lesson learned was like by giving up one substance, it. Um, made me aware of the cravings or was filling a little bit of that need yep. providing that whatever. Cause you can, you can absolutely tamp down one substance using the dopamine from another substance, right? Like the dopamine for, for somebody with a, a, a very affected dopamine reward pathway um, that, that dopamine has to come from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to, I, I, excuse me for saying that, um, for, you know, some people it, it has to end up coming from somewhere else. I'm always amazed at the individuals who once they quit using drugs and alcohol, then say, you know what, no more sugar or carbohydrates because I feel that no more caffeine or nicotine because I feel that and their ability to eliminate, you know, the large majority of the, the major mind and mood altering substances, sugar, caffeine, nicotine. Um, my hat's off 100% to those individuals um, who are able to, in, through endorphin release or whatever They get else. it from exercise. They, yeah, yeah they, they'll end up getting it from somewhere. And it's, and it's always fascinating to me. Um, going back to collegiate recovery, I was at Virginia Commonwealth uh, university, uh, hanging out with their collegiate recovery community. And I was talking to a young man and, uh, you'll see where this is going in a second. And I said, so how's everything going? He's like, man, he's like two years abstinent. He's like, just crushing it, man. School's going great, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of got quiet. You know how like sometimes in those like early recovery, you feel that need to fill that silence. And out of nowhere he goes, but you know what, man? He's like, I just spent my entire financial aid with a sports book. So I spent my I said, I don't have any money to live on for the rest of the semester. And I don't know what I'm going to do because I've been gambling it all away. And, uh, and I was like, Oh no. Right. And, and so one of the other really delicate things that you have to talk about in collegiate recovery. And I think about an early recovery as well is once again, going back into harm reduction and prevention of other high risk behaviors, be it gambling, um, risky sexual Sex, practices, yeah unhealthy eating, whether it be binging, binging and purging or restricted dieting, um, to really be paying attention to everything else sort of influencing young people. I I mean, you're talking majority of collegiate recovery is non-traditional age students, but you still have 18 to 24 year olds and not only 18 to 24 year olds, but you know, 25 to 35 to 40 year olds, um, who may have some emotional stunting from use, um, some, some maturation, um, issues from, from use and, uh, the other things may flare up. Yeah. And, and the fact that it may be just turning off the coffee and turning back on the cigarettes, you know, but it could be turning off the drugs and alcohol and turning up, you know, other really risky behavior. So in some of these like planning conversations that you're having with these major schools that have, thriving rec- collegiate recovery programs is how do we incorporate um process addiction type supports 
And it is, and it is a real sort of. Um, you got technology and phones. Yo, and, yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah and, and, and and don't even get me started on phones. Um, I, we've gotten to a place now where phones where people are like, oh, I put mine in my trunk, so I'm not tempted to use it while I'm driving. And I'm like, that's not digital recovery. That's you know that is forced abstinence. Yeah. Um, Airplane mode, dude. That's right. Yeah. Um, like I can't even imagine. I don't even put my phone on airplane. What are you listening to? What are you listening to? Going on, um, uh, but it's it's almost unfair. It's almost unfair to ask a collegiate recovery coordinator to then be a primary process addictions therapist and a prevention specialist on other risky behaviors. You know, it's. But the school, most of these bigger schools have the counseling centers that can in deal place. With it. Yeah. yeah. And so the referrals at the universities are really simple. It's like, oh my gosh, your eating disorder has flared up. Let's get you to the counseling center immediately. Mm -hmm. um, your gambling has flared up. This, that, or whatever has flared up. Let's get you into counseling. That is paid for by your student fees and your health insurance that you have as a student. Um, community colleges don't have the same level of, of staffing. They don't always even have counselors on campus. Um, a lot of times collegiate recovery at a community college is a student organization with just a very passionate, well-meaning advisor who may not always be a I'm licensed sorry. clinical anything. Um, <laughs> they usually are, but not always. Um, and, and so asking students or just your run-of-the-mill faculty to handle these situations it's risky business. It really is. You're, talk, you're talking about people's lives. I would, it would border on a most unethical mm -hmm. um, for, for, yeah, yeah. And that's, I think what I was kind of like hinting at at the beginning of this conversation is like, how do you, what is the line? <laughs> you know, like we'll, we'll know soon enough. Yeah. Guess, and, 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 and the other thing about collegiate recovery is even though we saw Brown University in the seventies, Texas Tech in the eighties. We are in the infancy of this. I mean, we were talking, you know, having a handful of them in 2006 um, to now having more in North Carolina in 2019 than we did nationally in 2006, right? Um, we're all learning together. We're all, I, God, I hate cliches, but we're all building the plane as we're flying it. I get calls and they're like, hey, you know, I encountered this and, and what do you do? And I'm like, I've never even heard of this problem. <laughs> like, I, I've got nothing. Let me throw it out to you know, UCAL Riverside, maybe they know about it. Um, and so being able to, it, it creating blanket policies with our population is dangerous too. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you used, you have to leave. Yeah. But we're literally the only group of individuals who will say, at the time you need the most support is the time we need to send you away. Mm -hmm. um, and so creating blanket policies around recurrence of use or other risky process behaviors it's hard to make those blanket statements. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's one thing that recovery high schools have done really well is take every situation as exactly what it is, is that students struggle and is their willingness to change is their willingness to, to re-engage or are they just, you know, are they, have they then become a safety concern for the rest of the community? And that's how you have to look at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's hard. Cause you're, you're basing that off of the judgment of 
whoever's involved, whoever's making the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we 100% and can't, yeah, go ahead. And people are hundred percent unpredictable. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, oh yeah. And, and I, and I could literally sit here right now. I 100% sit here and say right now that I will never ever smoke again. Not smoking for these last four months has been so enjoyable, but yo, let something come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden my tune will change very quickly. Like, dude, I can just have one. You know, let me just smoke one cigarette. This I is quit before. I could quit again. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I've had that thought. I'm like, well, maybe I could just smoke while I'm fishing. <laughs> so, but but that you just say that to say that this is all very unpredictable and, and we need to, um, we can create policies, but we also need to be as flexible and adaptable as we can be. You alluded to the fact that most students who participate in collegiate recovery programs are of the non-traditional demographic. Let me ask you this. With everything that's taken place over the last five to ten years with this opioid epidemic, um, do you see an influx of traditional students finding collegiate recovery programs and those programs really, because if there's 70,000 people overdosing last year, there's probably double that who will find recovery, right? Well, and, and I, yeah, I had mentioned the non-traditional and, and I haven't seen the numbers recently, but there, I, I, there's no way that's true with just the, anecdotally when I go to these programs now. Now, when I say non-traditional, that also may mean, um, working a full-time job, non-traditional parents, parents, yeah. not, uh, commuting students. But in terms of age, we are seeing so much more in that 18 to 24 and the, in the need and the emergence of recovery high schools mm-hmm. paints that picture too, is, um, there's a great, um, slide, um, that shows the typical addiction career, like 25 or 30 years ago. And the first treatment episode was 31. And, you know, I was I was just uh, over a, a friend of mine um, is a halfway house manager or a house manager for a recovery residence, and I was like, so what's the population like here? And she's like, every single one of these young ladies is under twenty two, you know, all opiates, uh, opiates and benzos, benzodiazepines, Valium, Xanax, um, and so the face of addiction um, is getting younger and younger and younger, and I and I'm always curious as to is it an awareness of the issues earlier on or are we seeing our younger people, you know, sort of hit some of those, those walls quicker. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I had to leave Western Carolina at, at 19 or 20, whatever I was. If I left Western Carolina right now under those same incidences, would the mechanisms in place look different? Because at that time, it was like, man, you just don't show up for class and you're getting in trouble, leave, right? Um, Would it have been like, hey, you're getting in trouble, you're missing class? What's going on? What's going on? How can Can we we support you? you? Can we send you to Red Oak, to Pavilion, to, you know? um, What What do you need? Yeah, so are the mechanisms different now that we're now catching these things earlier? Or are our students getting themselves into situations that used to take to you were 30, 35 Anecdotally, I would say that a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Yeah. There's a there's a uh, an awareness now. Do you think that with all this like hyper focus 
uh, awareness placed on opioids that some of the spotlight on alcohol and meth, even other drugs is kind of like loosened to where. Yeah, we. Because anywhere you go, you hear uh, addiction is synonymous to opioid Mm -hmm. use like that's today in this day and age that we live in. And, and, and what, you know, what are we seeing? Um, what are we seeing the, the growth of right now? The, the big business of marijuana, cannabis, I apologize. And I, I do, I do not have a professional or personal opinion on cannabis. I know what it does to the brain. I know what it does to the developing brain. Um, I also know that adults are adults Mm -hmm. make your own decisions. Um, I also am sort of seeing what this microbrewery this business of like drinking beer city. Yeah, man. Yeah. Like, like their microbrewers are everywhere now. And I remember the first time I saw the meme of the guy that said, Oh man, microbreweries are great because it's making my alcoholism look like a cute little hobby. Right. <laughs> uh, Sharon was telling me that AB tech or it wasn't Sharon. It was another um, person there, but that, um, that AB tech now has a microbrewery course. We on, do too. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. And, is that any different than like how to manufacture crystal meth? I mean, on some level, yes, but really do you have to be 21 to get into the microbrew class? That's a good question. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out and find out for you. And, and so we're, we're seeing the proliferation, but there's so much focus and, and there's so much focus on, you know, opiates being unintentionally addictive, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, well he broke his arm and this happened and now he's addicted to opiates and the pharmaceutical companies, I get that. I, like, I, I do understand that, but I don't know if when the, when 12 year old Chris Campo drank vodka with his older cousin and, and her really cool friends, if I was like, you know, I can't wait to become addicted to this. This is going to be awesome. Uh, that was unintentional. And, and this idea that, you know, I picked up the first drink as a choice and these kids were older, they were cooler. And all I wanted in life at the time was to fit in. Right. Mm-hmm. And it worked. It, yeah, man. Oh my gosh, I was so cool. Um, and <laughs> still are. Uh, I know, right? Thank you. Uh, but it, 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 this idea of unintentional addiction through opiates is I, I, detrimental to the overall. And and I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but the amount of people were losing to alcohol use, to um, alcohol related accidents, um, you know, um, other crystal meth and and benzodiazepines um hell crack cocaine's still not great cocaine's not great yeah um <laughs> i don't know why i just completely forgot cocaine was a drug um that's so, exactly what we're talking about because right. nobody here no it's not yeah. on your radar and and i rarely rarely get called to do any presentation where they're like hey can you talk to us about the dangers of cocaine or alcohol or cannabis mm-hmm. it's all hey come talk to us about the opiate epidemic opiate crisis and um People are like, oh, well, why aren't we suing the pharmaceutical companies, or why aren't we closing borders, or why? And I, it, there's no easy solution to. It. And and if we, I mean, even if we got rid of, I mean, we found out what happened when we got rid of overprescribing. People just moved to heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of these things about the older adult conference that I was just at is they wanted to know the mechanisms for addiction in older adults. As opposed to like, I'm really versed in the mechanisms for addiction in, in young adults and adolescents and stuff. And so they're like, well, what's different in older adults where they become addicted at 50, 60, 70? And, and 
I, so I started doing research. I started trying to read the literature. And essentially all I came down to was people get addicted to drugs. Older adults get addicted to drugs because drugs are addictive. Period. <laughs> That's it. Like, <laughs> there, was a, there was no difference in the mechanisms, right? It's all just dopamine and reward circuitry. Now, there's the, some chronic dependence issues around opiates that you don't see with some of the others um, as quickly, right? We all know that long-term alcohol use can, can cause that kind of dependence. But the, the physical dependence that opiates cause is very quick, very quick and unfair if you ask me. It's, no drug should behave that way. <laughs> Ever. Ever. What, um, what's on the horizon for collegiate recovery in the state of North Carolina? I would love to see a true focus on <clears throat> outreach. Uh, um, I, I like to look at collegiate recovery the same way I look at college football, which is a very strange comparison. But never once in, in all the years I followed college football and by extension college football recruiting, which puts you into a different class of nerdy fan, like mm -hmm. bordering on like you might need some help. Um, never once have I ever looked at college football recruiters, Jim Harbaugh or Nick Saban or any where they were looking at their own student population to find the best football players ever, <laughs> ever, like every now and again, they'll find a kicker, yeah. right. That maybe they're on scholarship from the soccer team. You or, might hear rumors that like Jalen Hearns is upset as a backup quarterback yeah. and thinking about transferring and yeah. blow a phone call in, but it's not like top of your list. No, absolutely yeah. not. Like I was never once approached at Western Carolina or NC state, like, have you ever thought about playing football? <laughs> uh, and, and one of the things that we've done in collegiate recovery um, for the most part is we've only recruited from our own student bodies. Let me stop you right there yes. real quick. I, I could almost, I'm almost willing to bet that one of the, one of the top questions that you get asked everywhere you go is how do we find, how do we get people? Mm -hmm. How do we raise awareness yep. for what we're doing on campus? Yep, exactly. That's it. Well, uh, how do we market? How, how do we market? How do mm -hmm. we get students to come out? How do we, and so as opposed to trying to find recovery in a campus of 30,000 students at NC State, why don't we go to where recovery is and let them know that collegiate recovery and education is an option for them? Because usually by the time at a community college, especially by the time you find somebody in recovery at a community college, that's their second or third semester. Boom. See you later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, I'm super involved for a semester because this is great, but now I got to go. Yeah. Right. And, and some of the, the arguments I've heard against this, this concept is, well, not everybody who I meet in the recovery community is fit to come to college or university. Who cares? Like that shouldn't be a, a deterrent. So we need to be out in our recovery communities talking to our people in recovery that, if you want to go to college, if it looks like a two-year human services degree, if it looks like just a two-year associate in arts degree. A technical school, a trade school. It, yeah. I was just talking to somebody whose son, just every time he would return to a university, he would have a recurrence of use. And finally, he said, you know what? He's like, school's not for me. He's like, can I just learn how to be, can I, he's like, I just want to learn how to weld. And so he's going to go to a technical community college just to learn how to weld. And Hopefully the same level of pressure that he felt at the university, some of that same temptations won't be there at the technical college. But, you know, you don't have to go to Duke yeah. or UNC or 
you don't have to have a master's degree or no, a PhD. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not everybody's uh-huh. goal. Yeah. Um, and, and we need to listen and hear and, and then make sure that collegiate recovery, we, we say that collegiate recovery is an, in, is inclusive. Um, and, and if we're saying that we need to not just be saying it because it's like the hip 2019, you know, social justice buzzwords, inclusive diversity, no, like stock photos of like, United Colors of Benetton on all of our advertising. Like we need to make sure that when we say inclusive, we mean inclusive. And we need to, um, and and this is something I could be better at too, is when somebody says I can't afford school and really be up to date and and know where scholarships are available for for people. Um, Really encourage um, scholarship funds at universities and community colleges for individuals in recovery because, you know, while certain jobs, um, like I said, my Starbucks barista job was great and, and I loved the free espresso, um, the amount of taxes I'm paying back into my community now are much higher than I was as a barista, mm-hmm. right? The amount I'm giving back to my community financially um, is much higher than it was then. Um, driving economic growth and if we invest in our students in recovery, they will pay dividends um, in the long term. Not just, and I'm not talking about just being good, normal, normal, good, good people, but paying back into society finally. Yeah, and like even take it a step further and like have create those relationships with like the therapist and the counselors and the treatment center, so that like it can it can be a part of the treatment plan. Like, Hey, would you ever, have you considered going to school and those private conversations? Like, you know what? I I would love to do blank. Oh, well, AB tech has this program here. Like getting them well-versed in knowing that, um, there, these supports are in place on campuses. Um, I'll tell you like a lot, a few of the referrals that we've received at SEC have come from a local treatment center because I had had private conversations with them at the recovery rally out here at Lake Chinaluska. I always kind of like first initial introduction, just, Hey, how'd you hear about us? Or how'd you find out about us? And boom, you know, it's coming from one of the treatment centers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and if we sort of normalize that, um, and say, Hey, cause here's the other thing too, about treatment. (laughs) Um, Treatment is it's treatment. It, this is a highly um, safe space, um, and 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 if you want somebody to like really get into recovery and love recovery, is you know pursue what you love as well. Like don't stay isolated and scared. I had a I had a counselor in treatment one time tell me, um, just heads up, follow widespread panic and fish and government mule and all these kind of bands around the country. Um, and I remember him, this counselor telling me, he's like, if you get into recovery, you can't go to those concerts anymore. And I was like, yo, I know how to be high and miserable. Like, I don't want to be sober and miserable too. (laughs) And, 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 and to then find recovery supports at those concerts, you know, like that was something that was really important to me. And if education is really important to you, learning how to live in recovery at a university, at a community college while receiving support is invaluable for an individual's recovery. Yeah. Well, you kind of hit on something that I did want to bring up before we close this thing out. And that is, um, you have found a way to support your own recovery 
while staying true to the things that you're passionate about. You're going to you're going to all kinds of concerts, dude. Like every weekend, you got your two year old, two year old daughter. <laughs> yeah. At these badass shows, you know, like you're doing the things that you've you've got to a point in your life where you understand yourself and you have the supports in place to where like, you're not going to allow that to prevent you from doing something that you love, whether right. it's crashing your bike on a <laughs> thing or going to, you know, a fish show or whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah, so yeah. like, um, what was that transition like? And like, how did you, at what point did you like, was there ever any like underlying fear about going back? Did you, Um, there wasn't. And, and, and I, uh, when I started to talk about this, I want to be really clear that like my journey is not everybody's journey. And if you are, if there is fear involved in going to a concert or going to something, I don't want you to be like, Oh, well, Chris did it. Uh, it's like, the, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it just meant, it meant so much to me. Um, and this was the other thing too, is that that last day that I used drugs and alcohol and the drugs and alcohol quit working for me. Um, I chugged 11 warm beers my last day and I didn't get drunk. And then I used a, an Oxycontin and didn't get high. And there was such a shift in how I viewed my life. There was such a shift in how I viewed everything I'd done up to that point. Um, it, I can't describe it. Um, and so the first time I started going back to concerts, um, I went with people I'd found in recovery. I didn't know about, so like Widespread Panic has the Gateway, which is the recovery fans. Fish has the Fellowship. Um, Grateful Dead have the Wharf Rats. I, I didn't even know about them yet, but I went with, with uh, other young guys in recovery um, and I found that the music took on a whole new feeling. It was all, it was all new. I'd seen the band Widespread Panic like over 90 times before I got into recovery. And it was like I was hearing them for the first time again. Um, same with Fish, same with Government Mule. And um, I, I, I heard, I, I, just, I was actually at the Asheville Civic Center for a Widespread Panic show um, in recovery, uh, Halloween, October uh, 31st, 2007. And I remember hearing the notes, like really hearing the notes. And this is going to sound so spaced out, but like in appreciating each note, because each note was a new experience and each note was like a new, like time, like slowed down. Yeah. Like, like, and it was fascinating. And I used to only be able to get to those places while on like hallucinogenics. And here I was able to get to that place in recovery. And, um, and that meant so much to me that I was able to still have these experiences but they were new and enjoyable and memorable. Um, and it, it, it was so weird. Um, I will also say this, that while I wasn't afraid, my mother was terrified. And so one thing I did, even though it was kind of annoying, um, for her, I would call her before the show started. I would call her at set break. And anytime my phone rang and it was her, I would pick it up. Um, so that she knew I was okay. And she told me later on that it took her 18 months of me being in sustained recovery before she was able to sleep through the whole night without worrying about me. And so while I wasn't afraid of my recovery going to places, I had to be mindful too that other people were 
concerned because it looked like I was taking these really big risks. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many people are familiar with these type of concerts, but they're known <laughs> for certain things. Um, and, and there was a lot of fear for other people had a lot of fear for me. And so part of my um, amends process really was if to, to be available to them, to answer the phone, to, um, to put their fears to rest when I could. And also like a little bit of accountability for yourself. Like, Hey, oof, I can't even, <laughs> I, I just did that oof, that millennial sort of, I don't have words for what you just said, uh, feelings thing. Um, oof. but, um, I can't imagine how I would have felt after the third time in treatment if I was at one of those concerts and I would be using and the phone had rang and it was my mom and I would have been too scared to answer. Like, mm -hmm. that would have crushed me, you know? Um, so, you know, for the, that's right, the other layer of accountability. Having the people in place around you, having mom yeah. on the phone, like... All of it, all of it's it. It's not... When you, when you take a step back and you look at it, it's not as high risk as... Chris went to a concert. Right. You know? Right. And, and the other weird thing is, is being super hyper aware that you're in recovery. Yeah. Like, you know what I don't need to go do is hang out with the guys with the nitrous tanks yeah. or yeah. <laughs> I smell marijuana. Maybe I shouldn't go mm -hmm. hang out over there. Like just being hyper aware that you're in recovery. And, and I want to say this too. And I thought this was really amazing as I drove to Chicago um, in 2000 and. 15, I can't remember, the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead at, at uh, Soldier Field um, in Chicago. And we went to the Wharf Rat meeting at Setlist, and I couldn't count how many, you know, the deadheads, like the real deadheads from like the 70s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, were at this Wharf Rat meeting. And I mean, it was, it was in the hundreds. Like the meeting was so big, like uh -huh. you couldn't even hear what was actually going on in the meeting, right? Um, and, and it occurred to me that the individuals that had made it out of that scene and gotten to this side and were the kind of people that could travel to Chicago um, relatively healthy and stuff were, were the ones that had found recovery. Um, and, and it's not true for all of them. It's a broad brush. But, um, but so many of them are in recovery and still seeing the Grateful Dead after all these years um, with, to the acknowledgement that Drugs and alcohol have killed so many of our musical heroes, like Jerry Garcia, being within my world the one. Right, so, um, so once again, we talk about dichotomies. Right, this we're all at this uh, the the recovery meeting at a Grateful Dead show, where the Grateful Dead ended when our you know our dark star passed away from from drugs. Um, it's a lot. Everything kind of comes full circle in those does. moments. Totally does. Yeah. What's it like to be a father? Yo. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no words, um, literally no words to describe what all of it's like. The, um, the fact that when I'm holding her and people go, oh my God, she looks exactly like you. And she does, dude. <laughs> <laughs> she really, really does. Um, your wife's probably sick of hearing that. <laughs> and well, and, and it's fascinating to more than anything is to watch her learn, is to watch her be present in the moment, to understand that at that age, she doesn't have language to, to think about fear, to think about anxiety. She just lives in every moment and just sucks in the experience. 
and to to watch that and um watch her start to connect the dots um she's gotten super into star wars uh which wonder why yeah right and um I remember the first time we were watching Star Wars and BB-8, the little white and orange circular droid came on the screen and she jumped out of my lap and she ran to this book and found BB-8 in the book and was pointing and pointing at the TV. And every time she sees Chewbacca, she asks me to do this. She goes and points at me and I do the Chewbacca roar, which I'll, I'll not do here. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll close the show out with that. Yeah, that's right, I'll do it right there. And... Um, and just to, to experience everything through her eyes, being in recovery, being able to be present for her. Um, and I can't wait to, to head back to Asheville and I get to FaceTime with her this evening. So, yeah, it'll be awesome. You know, it'll be great. So let's kick ass, man. Yes, sir. Well, we just did about two hours, bro. <laughs> Didn't even feel like it. Yeah. Uh, appreciate you again. Like yes. I said, man, you've been a, a super in inspiration um, for both my personal recovery and some of this business adventures, I could definitely say that we wouldn't be doing this podcast today had it not been for like, um, what you did for me, you know, a few years ago. Cause it, it just, I wouldn't have been in the same place that I am today. So thank you for saying that means a lot to me. And, and I hate to keep one last thing really quickly is in this field, we burn out quickly because we don't always see the the fruits of some of the seeds we've mm -hmm. planted we very transient and to hear just things like that um make sure that the we'll keep going yeah we keep going so yeah. thank you for, it's, for it's so important that. man it's so important um anytime that anytime that somebody affects my life positively or negatively, you know, I make sure to communicate with them yeah. <laughs> and let them know, uh, in the kindest and most right. compassionate way that I can. Yes. Yes. Um, but you definitely did, did do that for me. So awesome. I appreciate you, bro. How can, uh, people connect APNC to yeah, you? If, uh, please your recovery questions. Yeah. Social um, media. What you got? Yeah. Social media. Um, I don't check Facebook as much as I used to. Um, but my email address at work is C C A. M as in Matthew, P as in Paul, AU at APNC.org um, for all your collegiate recovery, anti-stigma, um, and high school recovery needs. <laughs> awesome. Chris, you're a badass dude. I cool. totally appreciate you coming over, man. Thank you guys for listening to NC Raw. Y'all have a good night. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast and a very special thank you to the Comfort Inn of Silva, North Carolina. They provide our recording space to us at no charge every week. Um, they're located at 1235 East Main Street in Silva, North Carolina. And they're a part of the Choice Hotels um, chain. So you can like check out what they got going on at cho choicehotels.com. They are a recovery ally and they actually support all kinds of community-based organizations um, here in Western North Carolina. So if you happen to be visiting the area, Pop in, give them some love, tell them thank you for supporting NC Raw and supporting recovery in our community. Thanks for tuning in.